0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. Just a few quick notes about that incredible Super Bowl before we move on. Although I will confess to having watched Patrick Mahomes throw to Hardman in the right corner of the end zone to win the game with about three or four seconds left. Uh, not because I'm such a Kansas City Chiefs fanatic, but because it's fascinating the way that Mahomes reads the defense. And has to look at... Uh, the offensive line and whether there's some kind of blitz coming or they all on one side. And so it was a, a bit of a fake pass, just enough to freeze the defense for a second that enabled him to roll out to the right and knowing that the tight end would be free there. And that was one play after another amazing catch and there were several of them during that final stretch by Travis Kelsey. So, listen to this. In the biggest football game in most of their lives, multiple San Francisco 49ers players admitted to not knowing the playoff overtime rules. So, this has to do with, you know, they, they restart the clock after the four quarters, tie score. 49ers won the coin toss. They chose to receive the ball first. Brock Purdy led the team down the field ended with a field goal, up three. On the following drive, with unbelievable pressure on him, Mahomes threw a touchdown pass to McCall Hardman to win the game. So... According to the playoff overtime rules, if a team scores a touchdown on the first possession, the other team is given a chance to respond with a touchdown of their own, or could be a field goal if the first one was a field goal. If that team is stopped on the next possession, in that case the Chiefs, the game is over. That was news to them. Here is a defensive lineman, Arik Armstead, saying he learned of the rule for the first time when it was shown on the big screen at the Las Vegas Stadium. Fullback said that uh, after the game, he thought his team could win by scoring a touchdown on the first drive. The Chiefs were prepared. We talked this through for two weeks, said Chris Jones, how we was going to give the ball to the opponent. If they scored, we was going to go for two at the end of the game. We rehearsed it. Now, it used to be that all overtimes were sudden death. One team scores, and that's it. The other team doesn't even get to ball that, the ball. That was outrageously unfair. But that hasn't been the rule since 2010. So you would think the players would have kind of gotten it by now. According to The Athletic, which is a New York Times sports section now, basically, the counterargument is that if Niners coach Kyle Shanahan had put his defense on the field first, the 49ers would have known whether they needed a field goal or a touchdown to tie or win the game. He elected to receive the ball first. We went through all the analytics, Shanahan said. We wanted the ball third, meaning if both teams matched and scored, he said, we wanted to be the ones who had a chance to go win. But it never got that far because they had to settle for the field goal and Patrick Mahomes worked his magic and the touchdown won the game. By the way, Kelsey, Travis Kelsey, who got the big smooch on the field from Taylor Swift and a huge hug and she telling him how incredible that was. Well, earlier in the game, he charged over to Chiefs coach Andy Reid and voiced his displeasure, I think that's putting it kind of mildly, for the substitution and play selection. So afterwards, Kelsey said, look, I was just telling him how much I love him. Uh, Yeah. Um, Later, he hugged him and apologized for his outburst. But Reed patted Kelsey on the back and said, after the game, he said, put me in. Just put me in and I'll score. He said this after the game, but obviously this was still during the game. I appreciate that the guy wants to play. I love it because he loves to play the game. That's not a selfish thing. So... Kelsey announced to, I guess his teammates, I don't think it could be heard by any microphones, mother effing Super Bowl champions. A reporter asked Kelsey where he was going next. Vegas is going to roll out the red carpet. He said, you might as well call me Elvis. All right. Hey, a quick note uh, said to report that Bob Edwards, you know his voice even if you're not an NPR fan. Bob Edward, who was chosen back in 1979 to host the show Morning Editions, described for his unflappable demeanor and a baso profundo. Let me redo that. Baso profundo voice made huskier by a -a pack-a-day smoking habit. Oh, that was the secret. Uh, We just learned that he has died at the age of 76. And he was a huge success at that show. But in 2004, I didn't realize it was that long ago, because I've interviewed Bob Edwards. NPR's decision to pull him from the show touched off an avalanche of complaints from his fans, even including statements on the Senate floor. But NPR stuck with that decision. Story number one, Donald Trump had until, I guess, 5 p.m. Eastern yesterday to file his appeal with the Supreme Court. This is the appeal, and he did with a few minutes to spare. This is the appeal of the three judge, appellate, panel: one Republican appointee, two Democratic ones, saying that he does not, as a former president, have immunity. So, probably the most fascinating thing I can tell you is that in this appeal, the very first quote at the top, it's not from some esteemed legal scholar, scholar, it's Yogi Berra! And his famous, it ain't over till it's over. So, the January 6th trial is right now kind of in limbo. And it could resume unless the justices issue a stay while they hear this appeal. And the Supreme Court will now have to decide how fast this federal trial can proceed on charges that he tried to subvert the 2020 election. Now, unless the justices move quickly, that trial could be A pushed into the heart of the 24 campaign, or or B, even past the election, which also could be the end of that prosecution. So, you've heard some of these arguments from the former president before. Quote, President Trump's claim that presidents have absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for their official acts presents a novel, complex, and momentous question that warrants careful consideration on appeal. Uh, that's the New York Times, Washington Post, insisting that presidents are shielded from prosecution and that a trial would, quote, radically disrupt his re-election bid. Trump's lawyers warn that if a president can be prosecuted for actions taken in office, quote, such prosecutions will recur and become increasingly common, ushering in destructive cycles of recrimination. Without immunity from criminal prosecution, the presidency, as we know it, will cease to exist. So, all of the legal commentators who were you know, in the process of, you know, reading this at the same time that they were reporting, seem to think the justices will move quickly. Now, they can do a couple things. They can just take the case and perhaps understanding this sensitivity of the impact on the January 6th case, render a decision within another week or so, and they'll give Prosecutor Jack Smith a chance to respond, and then Trump a chance to respond to that. As the Post says, the request gives the justice a potentially key role in determining whether and when Trump will face a federal criminal trial in Washington. Or the justices could just not take the case, which would let the appellate ruling stand. Maybe, but I just have my gut instinct is that they will want to weigh in on this because of the importance, not just in Donald Trump and current prosecutions, but involving any future president. So there's a couple of different legal arguments here. And so now we have two cases before SCOTUS. We talked about the oral arguments last week when justices both conservative and liberal made clear they were not buying the argument of Colorado that a single state could decide whether to kick somebody off the ballot or decide whether other states might do that as well and it would lead to chaos. And now we have the legal filing. So getting back to politics, this kind of came out of nowhere. New York Times reporting that Donald Trump is privately discussing endorsing his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, to be co-chair of the RNC, going to three people familiar with the discussions. Now, Trump has already told those close to him that his preferred choice to replace the RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, Ronna Romney McDaniel, who has made clear that she is leaving fairly soon is the RNC's general counsel, Michael Watley. But he's now also discussing Laura Trump, who's married to his son, Eric, for co-chair. The party rules designate one male and one female co-chair. I didn't know that was already a thing. Laura has worked closely with the committee for years. She's seen as a prolific fundraiser. She would be trusted by the Trump family. However, two people describe the situation as fluid, given the various moving parts. So, it's not a done deal. He's weighing it. And before you say, well, I mean, how can he put a member of his family in his co-chair? Keep in mind, Donald Trump made his daughter, Ivanka Trump, a senior White House official when he was president. And he made Ivanka's husband, Jared Kushner, a senior White House official. So Trump doesn't care. The base is not going to care. And if she's not the sole person, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But it's an interesting twist. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news, twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Story two. Also, I don't know, by some sheer coincidence, also happens to involve the former president. Now, he made some news over the weekend. Now, this is not... Him talking about signing a law, boosting earnings from musicians so that Taylor Swift shouldn't be disloyal, Trump's words, and endorse Joe Biden. Also, says Trump, I like her boyfriend, Travis, but he probably doesn't like me. It wasn't, and this is something else uh, he posted, we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country, we will rout the fake news media, we will drain the swamp. wasn't that. It wasn't that he told the South Carolina rally that, quoting again, Biden's thugs are still trying to put me in jail on fake charges for crimes that they openly admit that Crooked Joe did. He actually did these crimes. But then Trump added, I'm not looking for anything to happen to this guy so that he wouldn't be accused of seeking retribution. Uh, I think Biden's aides and advisors and officials, not adopting the language of thugs, uh, would not agree that Joseph R. Biden Jr. is trying to do this. And indeed, that he had any personal involvement. Rather than leaving it to Merrick Garland, who, as I noted on yesterday's podcast, the president himself and some of his top aides are really ticked off at Merrick Garland and think he should have edited Robert Hur's report, all those shots about his memory. And at the risk of repeating myself, that would have been the worst thing that Merrick Garland could have done. That would have become the story would leak within nanoseconds. And that's worse than not doing anything. No, it's about NATO. And at the uh, South Carolina rally, Trump said he had uh, once talked to a president of a big country who he says told him that if they, this other country, didn't increase their defense contribution to the North Atlantic alliance, quote, and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? And Trump described his response this way. You didn't pay, you're delinquent. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them, that's Russia, to do whatever the hell they want. Now, needless to say, there is a bit of a global uproar over the idea that Vladimir Putin could do whatever the hell they want. Foreign policy officials in Europe, much of the mainstream media here at home, one potential impact would be on Ukraine because with Trump having declined to endorse more U.S. military aid to the Ukrainians, who are in not great shape right now, that would allow Russia to either keep the territory it's already captured in the eastern part of the country or just roll in and, and take control of this sovereign nation. And what's also fascinating here is that many of the biggest hawks in the Republican Party in the past, many of the biggest supporters of NATO are saying, yeah, you know, I don't have any problem with what Trump said. Yeah, it's fine. This is Donald Trump's party. So here's a piece in the Washington Post about, well, it starts off with the history of Trump and NATO because he did, as president, have some success in prodding the NATO countries to increase their contributions to the alliance. They're supposed to pay 2% of their GDP to the NATO alliance. And remember, there is this Article 5 that says that any attack on a NATO country shall be considered an attack on all NATO countries. And the only time that was evoked was when the United States was attacked, on September 11th. And all the countries came to America's aid. So when he was running in 2016, he said NATO was obsolete. Was it worth the investment? He said the U.S. might not defend Baltic countries. 2017, he declined to affirm Article 5, the uh, mutual defense pact. 2018, he hinted at pulling out of the alliance. Said the United States shouldn't have to defend Germany or Montenegro. 2020, he reduced significantly the American troop presence in Germany, saying this was punishment for Germany's allegedly not investing enough in defense. And as a former president in 2022, he said publicly that he'd explicitly threatened not to defend NATO allies from Russia, which may not come as a shock given that Donald Trump to this day boasts about his friendly relationship with Vladimir Putin. Looking now at the reaction in the Trump Republican Party, Lindsey Graham, one of the most hawkish members of Congress by any stretch of the imagination. 2016, when he was running for president, he said Trump's comments had made Putin a very happy man. And Trump was essentially telling the Russians and other bad actors the U.S. is not fully committed to supporting the NATO alliance. So what did he say on Sunday? He was not worried at all about the former president's latest comments. Tom Cotton, also one of the most hawkish members of Congress. 2016, he said the U.S. must abide by Article 5 and make sure we stand by NATO and we stand for countries like Ukraine and Georgia that are facing Russian aggression and recognize Vladimir Putin as the adversary he is. On Sunday, Senator Cotton said, NATO countries that don't pay their share are already encouraging Russian aggression and President Trump is simply ringing the warning bell. And here's Marco Rubio. 2018, during the Trump administration, Uh, it was okay to call for other countries to pay, but that Trump went too far by, quote, questioning the value of the alliance and tweeted the end of NATO would be a dream come true for Putin. What did Senator Rubio have to say on Sunday? He has zero concerns about Trump's latest comments and ventured that he didn't mean them. We've already been through this, Rubio said. you think people would have figured it out by now. So, he didn't mean them? I mean, one thing you learn about Donald Trump is he means what he says. He doesn't always, he isn't always able to accomplish the goals he lays out, but, oh, here's uh, Republican Senator Roger Marshall saying that people should take everything that he says seriously, but not literally Isn't that just another form of he didn't mean it? Here's the kicker. Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham were part of a years-long effort to pass a bill which they just succeeded in getting through the Senate two months ago to prevent a president from unilaterally withdrawing from NATO. Now, former or future president could they have had in mind? They passed this law saying you can't do it. president doesn't have the power to do it. And then they don't have any problem with what Trump is saying? I mean, look, I get it. Donald Trump uses this as a negotiating tactic. Donald Trump likes to put pressure. He has felt for decades that the U.S. is carrying NATO. And whether you agree with that or you don't agree with that, I mean, I'm sort of in the camp that the alliance that was put together in the wake of World War II has worked pretty well in the, what, 80 years since then? Um... But I also understand how Trump, Donald Trump does these things. Now, just because he didn't do it in his first term doesn't mean that he wouldn't necessarily do it in his second term. Because as a president relatively inexperienced in foreign policy when he shocked everybody by winning in 2016... Donald Trump tended to rely on the advice of the generals, people like Jim Mattis, people like John Kelly. And I think they talked him out of it, if indeed he was serious. But in a second term, the foreign presidents made it very clear he's going to be surrounded by loyalists who would not be attempting to talk him out of it if this is what he wanted to do if he is just trying to apply pressure on the NATO countries, well, that's a different story. Some European policymakers saying that Trump's rhetoric was a security threat to the continent. Senior German lawmaker who had worked for Angela Merkel said Europe needed to get ready to stand on its own. Of course they're gaming it out when your biggest ally on the planet As the leading candidate, not just for the Republican nomination, but for president, at least as a snapshot right now, saying these things, you know, if you're a NATO country in Europe, you better have a plan B. And as I mentioned, senior advisor Jason Miller saying Joe Biden went back to letting these other NATO countries take advantage of the American taxpayer. When you don't pay your defense spending, you can't be surprised that you get more war. Now, New York Times has a little anecdote that when Trump took office, his staff explained how NATO's uh, mutual defense obligations worked. You mean if Russia attacked Lithuania, we would go to war to Russia? With Russia? That's crazy, Trump said. And then it slides into... uh, what he's had to say at that rally and the reaction. And certainly almost all of the media are now wringing their hands about it. Here's Christiane Amanpour of CNN. I mean, it literally is insane. In one sentence, President Trump turned the entire post-war, you know, transatlantic security doctrine on its head. He actually, after that, whatever you want to call it, propaganda coup for Putin said he was going to go for full defeat or only negotiate on his terms over Ukraine. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell rebuking Republicans who are opposed to aiding Ukraine. It was a rare Sunday vote on advancing the bill for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. But we'll see how that works, and I don't know that the House GOP would go along with it. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story three. President Biden, according to NBC News, called Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu an asshole on at least three occasions in private conversations. Look, I have no doubt that Biden is frustrated with Bibi. Refusing to ease off on the military campaign In southern Gaza, where they did just rescue two of the hostages, but where there are a million Palestinian refugees, because this was sort of the last safe zone. Sources close to the president describe Biden giving Netanyahu, uh, blasting him, that is, for giving him hell, referring to him as this guy. Here's the question I have to ask. Do Biden's advisors think that by continuing to leak this, you know, he called Trump a sick F, he called B.B. What's the exact quote? <laughs> oh, an a-hole. Okay. That they're making him look like a tougher guy? Kamala Harris speaking to the Wall Street Journal for a profile piece yesterday. And she says she's ready to be president. They are really putting her out there in a way that was not happening even six months ago. More TV interviews, on big shows, and now the Wall Street Journal. The reporter asked, do voters' concerns about Biden's age mean that she must convince them that she's ready to serve? I am ready to serve. There's no question about that, Harris said. Everyone who sees her on the job, quote, walks away fully aware of my capacity to lead. Allies of Harris say she was poorly utilized by the White House early in her tenure, is now positioned to show her value to the presidential ticket, especially on abortion rights, according to this Wall Street Journal story. As for left-wingers in the base who... uh, are supporting Israel. I get it, she says. I get why people are protesting. We are working around the clock to end this conflict. Hey, remember uh, when the border bill compromise went down to defeat and there were three Republicans who voted against their party? Thereby, um, this was on the Mayorkas impeachment, which of course was tied up with the border bill. Mike Gallagher was one of them. And a couple of days later, Congressman Mike Gallagher announced that he's leaving at the end of his term. He's not running for re-election. Now, he had to know that. It wasn't like he got backlash and then he decided, okay, I'm out of here. He had to know a decision of that magnitude. And maybe that's why he felt, even as everybody was yelling at him on the floor, other Republicans, that is, that the pressure didn't particularly bother him. Story four, Mika Brzezinski on MSNBC's Morning Joe called on the White House to send surrogates on Fox News to fight for President Biden, complaining that nobody claps its back, claps it back against the network whose coverage she proceeded to rip I'm a little surprised because I think she's conflating opinion people with news people, but even if you accept her premise. And this all was triggered by Robert Herr, the special counsel's report about Biden's memory, and many on MSNBC and CNN have been playing defense, saying, you know, Herr had no right to put in his personal opinion and so forth. Biden and allies saying that as well. So, Okay, I'm ready. Send somebody over to my show. I ask a lot of the White House, and now I'll be asking the campaign. Put people on. We'll be fair. We'll have people supporting former President Trump. We'll have people supporting President Biden. Number five, the Biden campaign, says Politico, has joined TikTok. And they made this video, I think I alluded to it yesterday, When I asked if he was uh, cheering for the Chiefs or the 49ers, Biden said the Eagles, because otherwise I'd be sleeping alone because my wife's a Philly girl. But the problem, of course, is that congressional leaders in both parties have called for TikTok to be banned. And Biden is stunning that because of security concerns, because it is owned by a Chinese company. And last year, the White House gave federal agencies 30 days to wipe the app off all government devices. But I suppose you would argue that, you know, with so many young people being on TikTok, that while it is still legally able to operate in America, you know, why shouldn't Joe Biden and anybody else utilize it for elections? Here's a bonus story, number six. I was really surprised at Jon Stewart's return to The Daily Show last night. He's going to do Monday nights, as you may know. Not that he was funny. I mean, he's always funny. That's what he does for a living. Not that his timing was impeccable, despite returning after nine years away from the show he helped make famous. Um, You know, he mugged for the camera and did camera turns and all that. What surprised me was... Stewart, who is obviously a liberal, took on both candidates. He took on Joe Biden as well as Donald Trump. Now, at the beginning, I didn't think so because he said, yeah, Joe Biden under fire, special counsel's report, memory problems, poor memory, and let's roll some of that. And then he rolls Donald Trump. During a deposition saying, I can't really recall that happening. i have to check. I don't know. And then Trump's adult kids with the spicing of I don't know. I can't remember. And I thought, okay, well, that was a switcheroo. But is this what we're going to get when he's in the chair on Monday? Just Trump bashing. But then he came back to Biden and really mocked that awful news conference that he had. And then when he was finished and walked off and then decided to come back and ended up taking a question on the Middle East, John Stewart, no, 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 it's over. Keep walking. Don't come back. And of course, Biden comes back and gives a rambling answer and then confuses the presidents of Mexico and Egypt when he meant to say Egypt. And John even put up a map of like, here's Gaza, Here's Mexico. They don't share a common border. And I would say he ended up doing more time on Biden than he did on Trump. You know, he played a lot of excerpts from the news conference and, you know, made fun, mugged. And he also kind of said he kept putting up two shots Of Biden and Trump and saying, is this the best America can do? Nobody wants this. They're old. And then he had clips, you know, something that he made famous, you know, using clips to make fun uh, of various um, prominent Democrats plus Kamala Harris saying, oh, you know, he's so focused. He's so organized. It means he's really on top of it. And he made a joke about that. Um, It was good. And look, he was sending a signal. You don't do that by accident. Stewart knows the game. He was sending a signal that he's not going to completely give Biden and the Democrats a pass. And I think that laying down that marker made sense. Now, in an interview yesterday morning on CBS Mornings with Gail King and the gang, um, he was asked whether or not uh, he's trying to have an influence on politics. I don't know about hoping to have an influence, uh, Stewart said, but I'm hoping to have a catharsis and a way to comment on things, and a way to express them that hopefully people will enjoy. But as far as influence, and you guys know this, just from doing this, just about everything I wanted to happen over the 16 years I was at The Daily Show did not happen. So, yeah, he's lowering expectations. But it's true, you know, I have a chapter on Jon Stewart, one of my books, and the way that show worked best is the writers in the room, when they would have their morning meeting, would go through, you know, possible stories and segments, and and they would try to get Stewart riled up. And he was perfectly willing to be riled up. And the more riled up he was, the funnier he was that night. So when he says catharsis, he's not kidding. All right, we had a lot to cover today. And fortunately, I talk fast. I mean, if I spoke slowly, the thing would take about two hours. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.